it's a pleasure to be here. Um, as Jeff called me, uh, it's been several months ago, and I've been really looking forward to it. I have, uh, of course, Josh and Brent Nelson I saw a minute ago. I don't know if did I just, maybe Brent didn't come in. Oh, there, okay, there you are. There you are. Um, I know that... Uh, I know the tendencies and everything, and I know probably how you're going to react when I ask you this, but if I use this and you're sitting in the back, I mean, I understand sitting in the back. Um, I'm in a Baptist church myself, and uh, I understand all that, but if you, you might want to move forward, though I also know what happens usually when you ask people once you've started to move forward. So it's completely up to you. I'll probably be using this a little bit, but I'll try to write, I'll try to write a, little bit, a little bit big. Um, so our, our topic today, as you can see from the as you can see from the uh, screen, Abraham's sanctification by faith. Uh, I once heard an old Chinese proverb that said, don't bother asking the teacher what you want to learn because he will tell you what he wants to tell you anyway. And uh, there's a little bit of that going on today uh, because <laughs> um, we're going to talk about sanctification, but we're going to kind of do that, we're going to kind of do that in a... I wouldn't say roundabout way, but maybe start in some places, as long as we're talking about Abraham, maybe start in some places just to kind of get our footing a little bit that you might not, you might not expect. When we, when we talk about sanctification, what we'll often do is we will kind of block it off in terms of, you know, you have, sometimes it's spoken of this way. You have justification, you know, then, then sanctification, and then glorification, and we tend to think of those kind of chronologically. Like, you know, I was justified, now I'm being sanctified, now, then I will be glorified. And I can understand speaking that way, and of course we all speak that way, I speak that way sometimes. But the reality is, is it's not as simple as, as you know, it's not as simple as justification's past, sanctification's present, glorification's future. It doesn't really shake out that way in terms of the Bible. And, the, and, and though, say, justification and sanctification are not the same thing, they're not synonyms, they are, uh, they are nevertheless inseparable, right? So um, they're distinct, they're distinct but inseparable. That's the way I like to talk about them. So when we talk about sanctification, let's just say a few things about sanctification generally, since I'll be using that term a lot, and it's up on the screen, and that's what we're, there's, there's a lot of what, I mean, I guess that's the central topic for the, uh, for the weekend. What do we mean when we talk about sanctification? Well, I think one of, the, one of the most helpful ways to talk about sanctification is, is to also talk about a, a word that's absolutely related to it. Sometimes we don't relate the two things together, and that is the, just the, the general word holiness. Um, as, as you probably know, I mean, those concepts are very related. The words in the Bible for sanctification and for holiness and sanctify and, you know, be holy, these are very, very commonly related words, and they're, they're similar words. Um, I think a good place to start, when we just think about what is sanctification, of course we can talk about it in more than one way. We'll get to Abraham, I promise. Um, And then when we get to Abraham, I promise we'll eventually get to his sanctification. Um, There's a couple of ways we can talk about sanctification. I mean, you can talk about sanctification in terms of definitive sanctification, and that is, uh, you know, rather than thinking of it as sort of a process, you think of something that is um, you know, 1 Corinthians 6.11 is a great example. You know, you were washed, you were sanctified. It's something that it is, it, is, it exists. Uh, it's something that has been accomplished in you and for you um, through the Spirit. 
And there's also a way to speak about sanctification as something progressive. Um, you know, First, first Thessalonians 4.3, for instance. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should avoid um, sexual immorality. Another text, just to look at real quick, just to lay some groundwork, is Romans 6, a text that you'll be familiar with. Romans 6.19 I'll just jump right in the middle. You know, Paul says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Right? The same guy who says you were washed, you were sanctified, you were glorified. Um, So we can speak of sanctification and need to speak of sanctification in both ways. Uh, And, but... Today when I'm talking in this session, the next session, I'm not always going to sort of qualify, do I mean progressive, do I mean definitive, because the fact of the matter is you can't really separate them. You can't really speak only of definitive sanctification without also speaking about progressive sanctification and vice versa, because one implies the other. You can't have one without the other. Uh, it's, it's, it's not really the case that you, well, I was definitively sanctified, set apart by God, but you know, the progressive part hasn't come yet. Or you can't say, well, I'm just, you know, I'm just being progressively sanctified, the definitive thing I'm not, not really sure about. It doesn't really work that way. Um, if you think about just the general biblical idea, say, of holiness, if you, think of holiness as, if you think of holiness as the outworking of sanctification, both your definitive, definitive position that you have before God on the basis of the work of Christ in you and for you, apart from you, um, if you think about sanctification as the outworking of that that is, is leading towards holiness, a great place to start, just so we know what we're talking about, and this will connect, I promise, to, uh, to Abraham, is Leviticus 19. This is the text that I like to talk about more than any text when I'm talking about holiness and sanctification. Uh, because I think it gives us insight, I think it gives us real insight to what holiness means. And when I say holiness in the next few minutes, you just your sanctification when I say it. It gives us real insight. In fact, I think it's, and sometimes I'll call it the handbook of holiness, or the handbook of, handbook of sanctification in the Bible, Leviticus 19. Uh, because when we talk about sanctification or holiness, we often talk about, say, being set apart, right? And, and we'll say, you know, we've been set apart. And sometimes we'll leave that kind of vague. And sometimes when people hear that, I think they think, yeah, I've been set apart somewhere, to do, to do something that makes me different than sort of the part I've been set apart from. And it can get kind of vague. The thing about Leviticus 19, I think, that's revealing is because if you look at Leviticus 19, and of course Peter quotes it, if you look at Leviticus 19, there's a, there's a common refrain throughout <clears throat> It starts in verse 2. I'm not going to read all of Leviticus 19, don't worry. Um, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And then what follows, what follows is is virtually um, a commentary that includes just about every kind of part of the law with this constant refrain, I am the Lord your God, I am the Lord your God, I am the Lord your God. And so what, what follows from that is... Uh, 
repeats of commands about how you relate inside your family, like with parents. Uh, what follows from that is how you relate, say, to those who are disabled, how you relate in business with your weights and measures, um, how you will worship the Lord, uh, how you will keep your fruit trees. In fact, how you'll grow fruit trees is in there. Uh, how you'll keep your cattle, how you'll dress, how you'll keep your beard. Um, let's see, I'm probably leaving a few things out. Um, how you'll treat um, strangers or aliens from other, you know, from other nations, how, you, how, how they're to be treated, uh, how, much, how much of your crop you're supposed to bring in and how much you're supposed to leave behind, you know, how many years you let your tree, your fruit tree go, and then once it has fruit, how you don't take the fruit from it that year, but you dedicate it to the Lord, which is a, you know, which is a tall order for people who are needing food to survive, who are subsistence kind of farmers. That's a tall order. And so it looks like kind of a catch-all. And of course, right in the middle of it is, you know, you'll love your neighbors yourself. And you might think, well, what does this have to do with sanctification? Well, it has to do with sanctification because of that constant refrain, I'm the Lord your God, I'm the Lord your God, I'm the Lord your God. Be holy, for I am holy. Because if you think about it, if, if we don't connect it all together, what it ends up looking like is, I'm the Lord your God, you'll be holy because I'm holy. And now here's sort of a, uh, a recap of sort of the major areas of the law. But why? Why? I mean, is it just kind of a catch-all, you know, in case something was left out, or is it just a summary? Well, I think Leviticus 19 says this. What it points to is this, and that is a life from the very bottom, sort of daily things that you do, like the way you keep your field, the way you dress, etc., etc., all the way up to the way you treat each other, the way you treat your family, the way you uh, deal with one another in business, whatever it is you do, what the picture you get in Leviticus 19 is that life is meant to be like that, whole. And there's not to be gaps in it, whatever those gaps may be. So that every single area of your life is directed and informed by your relationship to the God who, the God who claims to be holy and commands, you to be, commands us to be holy and desires us to be holy. And I think that's the picture you get more than more than, say, coming here and trying to figure out what the principles are. Like, what's the principle for fruit trees in the 21st century? Well, I don't think there is a principle for fruit trees. Or, you know, what about the don't mix the cattle? How does that apply? What's the principle we need to apply? Do we not, like, have mixed breeds of dogs or something? What are we supposed to do with that? Well, I don't think we have to do anything with it. I really don't. I think the point there is what he's talking about is from the inside to the outside, to how you appear, to how you talk, to how you relate to one another, to everything that, every single thing that you do, it is meant to be lived out before God as a whole life before him. Everything. And I think that's one, of the, that's one of the beauties, I think, of this chapter, and it's something I think that often gets overlooked, is the picture that it paints of what life before God is meant to be. Life before God is meant to be every single area of our life devoted to him with no gaps, whatever that may be, and whatever it is you're called to do. And I think that sort of simplifies a lot of things and gives us a view. Now, there's lots more we could say about this. I'm not going to stay on this too much longer, but I really do believe that's what's going on there. And that's the picture of life it's painting. And that's really what holiness is all about. The idea of being set apart is good, but I think that's only part of the story. The larger biblical idea of holiness or sanctification, I think, points to this. It points to us becoming, us being declared and us becoming 
the kind of people that God intends us to be ultimately and finally. And that is people who are completely in every area of life, from the everyday simple things that we do, to the more public things that we do, to the relational things we do, whatever it is we do, all of our whole lives devoted to Him. And we should, I think we should first and foremost think of sanctification and holiness as devotion more than, more than just a simple idea or a vague idea of being set apart. And by the way, just as an aside, I think grabbing hold of this opens up, opens up what we can do in terms of preaching and teaching from the law in ways that maybe otherwise we might just turn to, you know, what's the, what's the one principle? You know, what's the one principle for the New Covenant believers? It's the same principle. And the principle is, your whole life ought to look like this. Lived out before God. Now, what's this have to do with Abraham? That's a good question. Um, the way this, ha- what this has to do with Abraham is because it's through Abraham, or with Abraham, that God begins that God begins to bring about his plan, his eternal plan, to have, a child, have people that will say, I will be their God and they will be my people. And to have people who are devoted to him and obey him, who are sold out for him, who are connected to him and related to him in any way, who live in relationship with him. And it's with Abraham that the unfolding of that plan takes place. It really begins to take place. Of course, it happens before Abraham. But it's Abraham, of course, these are Abraham's children, right, that, that, that are being addressed here in Leviticus 19. And so, anyway, I just wanted to start off with that so that every time if we use the word sanctification or use the word holiness, we don't have to, I don't have to go back and try to qualify everything. I just wanted to, lay, I just wanted to lay, some, lay some groundwork. Um, to get a picture of Abraham, to get a hold of Abraham, we have to think about who Abraham is in the Bible and how he's presented it's really important, if we want to get to Abraham's sanctification, we have to start with, well, who was Abraham? I mean, when you first meet Abraham in the Bible, think about the situation in the world. It's a complete world of confusion, right? You've just had this incident with a tower, right, where people have, people have tried to make a name for themselves apart from God, and you know what happens. And uh, I always tell my Greek students, every time they complain about having to learn Greek, I just say, well, don't blame me. Just blame those folks who built that tower. It's their fault. It doesn't help. I always think it's funny. They don't think it's funny. But always, it doesn't help them. It doesn't relieve them. But always, it gives me a little bit of relief. So anyway, I just kind of do it for myself. But it is true, though. It is true. It's unavoidable. It is true. But that's the kind of world that Abraham comes into. So it's interesting, isn't it? Right before you get a promise to the nations... You see where the nations were created. Through you all the nations of earth will be blessed. Well, the nations have just been more or less created from that debacle at the, ta- at the, at the tower. So you come to Abraham and you, know, you, have, you, have, you, have, you have years and years and years go by. Centuries go by. Eleven chapters of Genesis, right? Eleven chapters. Centuries go by. And it's sort of a di- downward spiral. Uh, you have people like Enoch. This is, of course, all after the fall. You have people like Enoch, and, who is uh, you know, noted to be righteous. You have Noah. Um, but generally speaking, the track record of the human race by the time you get to Genesis um, 11, not so good. In fact, not good at all. And then comes Abraham. But it's interesting how Abraham shows up. How does Abraham show up? What's the... 
Do you remember the first thing that's said about Abraham in relation to Abraham when he shows up in chapter 11, not chapter 12? There's a, there's a list of genealogies. There's some genealogies in chapter 11. And one of, them, one of them is the genealogy of Shem. It's a very important genealogy, obviously. And at the end of that, near the end of that, is this guy Abram. Now, if you think about what's the point of a genealogy? I mean, a genealogy, a genealogy is, uh, of course, tells us, tells us you know, where people have come from, where they're going, what their family line is, all those simple things. But you know, there's in many ways, many, many of the genealogies in the Bible also reveal something important about what God is doing. It's sometimes through genealogies that you can track God keeping his promise. Like when you read, the, say, the first several chapters of Chronicles. You can read that as an example. You can read that as an example in lists of the track record of God being true to his promise, of creating a nation. Right? And you can see that in the genealogies. But you have this really interesting genealogy at the end of chapter 11 of Genesis um, where you get a list of people. And you come down to Abraham and he's married to Sarai and Sarai was barren. She could have no children. Boom. End of the story. Right? I mean, let's just say for, for instance, I don't know, this isn't always all that helpful to do, but let's just say we've never read the Bible before. We're not, we're not familiar with the story. You've been reading up to Genesis 11. It's just all sort of... Hits, I mean, sort of starts and fits, and then just disaster after disaster, and judgment and wickedness, and you know, the thoughts of their hearts were evil all the time, and God had regretted of making them. Uh, but He continues on, or regretted of creating them and continuing with them. And you get to this man, Abram, and you think, hmm, okay, well, the end. That's it, that's it with that guy, right? Because that's the whole point. I mean, the genealogy, Abram's, Abram's genealogy just, it's done, it's finished. That's the last thing said about him in chapter 11. Now, we often don't start talking about Abraham until chapter 12, but I think to really understand what happens with Abraham in chapter 12 and then following his whole life, we have to remember that last word. Sarai was, now, Sarai was barren. She had no children. Because what, from that one comment, from that, that one comment opens the door, sort of sets the stage, if you will, for the entire rest of the biblical revelation of God's plan of redemption for humanity, for his children, which ultimately includes our sanctification and becoming the people that God wants us to be and that God intends for us to be and that God will supply everything we need to be. But it happens right at that, at the point of hopelessness, at the point, at the point where you cannot look at the rest of the story and think, Abram had a lot to do with this. Because he didn't. Because then you turn the page, well, or look to the next chapter, let's say you turn the page, you get to chapter 12, and God and Abram meet. I'm in, oh, no wonder, I'm in Exodus 11, I kept thinking this doesn't look right. <laughs> I was looking for that Sarai quote and thought, uh-oh, maybe I've been misquoting that for years now. But no, I, there it is. All right, relief. It still is there in Genesis chapter 11, verse 30. The ESV has it right. Um, there it is. But you come to chapter 12, right? It looks like the story's done with Abram. It should be. Can't have kids. And then you get the most remarkable promise in light of the fact that he cannot have children. You get the most remarkable promise. God 
Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Well, that's a remarkable promise. And it's even more, it's even more of a remarkable promise when you think about one of the key elements that's going to be needed for the fulfillment of that promise, which is what? If you want to have nations, if you want to become a great nation, you've got to get that started. What's the first thing you're going to need to get that started? Kids. What's the thing Abraham can have? Kids. The very thing. And so in the midst of this sort of bleak statement, all of a sudden now you have this, God comes on the scene with Abram, and then, like I said before, the rest of the Bible kind of explodes from that one point. Sarah was barren, could have no children, and then now the Lord God said to Abram, go from your country. The history of redemption begins before that, but this is a new chapter that opens up that then basically basically is filled up with the rest of the entire content of the Scripture. The rest of the Bible. It's also interesting, isn't it, that when the, and when the narrative of Genesis slows down to talk about Abraham, you go from 11 chapters that cover centuries to something like 12 chapters just of Abraham that cover just a generation. There's as much or more, there's more, there's, there's more time spent on Abram, just sort of the story of Abram, even before you really get much to his children, than there is for the whole, beginning, the whole beginning of Genesis. So things really slow down for a good reason. So what can we say about Abram? Who is he? What did he do to commend himself before God? Well, basically, he lived in a place called Haran that was full of idol worshipers. Um, or he lived in Ur of the Chaldeans first, which is always typically associated with not so good things in the Bible, right? It's a place that's later going to become Babylon. So he is from a place that is remarkable throughout the Scripture as being evil, filled with idols, and even uh, gets mentioned all the way down to the end of the Bible in Revelation, right? As sort of the uh, sort of the seedbed for all kinds of things that are going to that are all kinds of things that are going to happen, uh, opposing God and His plan. And so that's where Abram's from. So Abram is basically an idol worshiper who doesn't know God, who God calls out of, pagan, out of the nations. He's out in the nation. God calls from the nations and brings him in to create a new people for himself, God, a new people for himself through Abram. A new people who will be a particular kind of people. And this is how I'm slowly working, don't worry, I'm slowly working my way back to it. Because in, in, the next, in the next session, this will, keep you, this will make you stick around after the break. After, in the next session, we're going to see what I think is the most important text in the whole entire Bible for understanding the connection between justification, sanctification, works, and obedience, and faith. In two verses. So, there you go. But, I mean, pay attention to what happens between now and then. But I'm just telling you, that's just a little preview of what's to come in the second, in the second session. So... That's Abram's track record. Abram has no claim on God himself. It's all the work of God, and that's how it's presented. So right from the very beginning, the whole history of Abram, the whole history of Abram is a history of God at work in a hopeless situation with people who have shown themselves to be hopeless, 
with people who have shown themselves to be disobedient, with people who have shown themselves to be, to be evil and wicked and not at all concerned about God or living for him or even having a knowledge of him. And that's how the story of Abram starts. And that is how the story of sanctification also begins. Because God is going to have a particular kind of people through Abram. He's going to have particular people who do particular things, who look particular ways, who act in particular ways, and who ultimately will be people. He says, I will be their God and they will be my people. A refrain that is, a refrain that is repeated all the way out to, the, to you get the new heavens and the new earth. The new Jerusalem comes down and says, behold, I'm making all things new. I myself will dwell with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And it all begins. It all begins in some way. Of course, you know, it begins earlier than this, but this is where we're beginning anyway today. It all begins with, and Sarai was barren, she could have no children. That's where it starts. That gigantic congregation that nobody can number from all the nation, every nation, tongue, and tribe begins, now Sarai was barren, she could have no children. That's where they come from. Which means the whole work of God from then on, the whole work of God's salvation from then on and all the different sort of components that we might talk about, justification, sanctification, glorification, all those things that we might talk about all start from there and are all heading towards some place. And that is a new heavens and a new earth where we will dwell forever with God as his people. And being God's people means something. It means being something particular, as we'll find out. Well, the story of Abraham, of course, continues. And as it continues, what you'll see is, before you get to the very important chapter 15, what you see is, is a relationship is there between God and Abram. He follows God's leading. leading. Uh, he responds to God's word and promise and builds an altar to worship God. That's in chapter 12, right after the thing we just read. He goes to Egypt, right? And he wavers a little bit in Egypt because, uh, you know, he, Abram had a tendency when these really powerful men got around his apparently pretty beautiful wife, he had a tendency to get kind of squirrely. Squirrely, that's a West Virginia term. It probably translates well enough. Uh, but he did have a tendency to get a little bit nervous. There you go, nervous. He tended to get a little bit nervous when he got around these sort of powerful men and he has this really beautiful wife. Um, but at the end of the day, he does end up making a big profit in Egypt. He does pretty well for himself. And God acts on Sarah's behalf, right, against Pharaoh. Uh, then he returns. When he returns, he, in chapter 13, he builds an altar. Um, and then later, he divides up the land between himself and Lot and his descendants. And uh, you get a repeat that his descendants will be greater in number than the dust of the earth. That's chapter 13. Um, then he defeats a bunch of kings. He saves his nephew Lot, receives a blessing from Melchizedek. All this is taking place. All this is taking place. And what we see is Abraham is walking with God. But more importantly, God is clearly on Abram's side. God is clearly at work in, in Abraham's life. And there is an implicit relationship between God and Abram that you can see, right? Because when you're reading biblical narrative, we often, think, we often think to really be taught what we need to do is read Paul because then you can sort of get points. But you have to remember, biblical narrative teaches every bit as much as a biblical epistle does. It just teaches in a different way. So you learn through stories rather than sort of maybe propositional statements. But you learn just as much. 
And in fact, you learn the same, you, you learn the same, exact, you learn the same exact content. It's just you learn about it in the form of a story rather than maybe in, 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 terms, of, in terms of just statements. And so there's an implicit relationship between them, a particular kind of relationship that must ultimately kind of look a particular way. And when we get to chapter 15 about Abraham, we find out what kind of relationship that is. Because chapter 15 is extraordinarily important in the life of Abraham and in what we're talking about today, uh, because it's in chapter 15 that you have the wedding together of two words that are wed together throughout the Bible, and that is righteousness and faith. Up to chapter 15, there is no explicit mention of the word faith in the entire scripture. That's the first time it appears. The first time. Explicitly. Now, righteousness we've seen before. But it seems remarkable to me that as you come to chapter 15, in this very, this very important, pivotal chapter in the Bible, where God establishes, or, uh, yeah, God establishes this covenantal relationship with Abraham, affirms this covenantal relationship with Abraham, that you have the connection of those two vital words, faith and righteousness. And Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, was this the first time Abram believed? No, it isn't. And we know that for two reasons. One, you can see it in the narrative from 12 to 15. You can see it. As Abraham, as Abraham walks before God and as he, he worships God and he, and he, he continues to follow, uh, follow God's direction and God's leading, you can see it, but you also get the direct word from the writer of the Hebrews who says, by faith, Abram left his homeland. So we know Genesis 15, not the first time Abram believed. Uh, but but it's, 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 I think the reason that the two things are brought together explicitly here is because of what happens. And it's because of what happens here that we can then go on and talk about, then go on and talk about the kind of people that we're meant to be if we are the children of Abraham. And, and learning about and thinking about and applying and teaching sanctification has everything to do with understanding what it means to be the children of Abraham. Not simply what does it mean for each individual person to be sanctified or to live a holy life. That's, obviously, that's important too. But the context of sanctification in the Bible, the context for it is being part of a particular kind of people, not just individuals who are sanctified in sort of various ways at various times through various means, right? There's, there's something to that. But the, the, the backdrop and the picture of sanctification, just like salvation, just like justification, in the Bible is being part of a particular kind of people, specifically the children of Abraham those who, who are the faith of Abraham. And uh, that's why I think Genesis 15 is so important to build, to lay the foundation for understanding that topic is because when, you know, when, when Abraham comes, he, Abraham's wavering a little bit actually, it appears, here, because uh, you know, it's been a long time. A long time has passed. And uh, he still doesn't have any children. And... Um, God comes to Abraham, and Abraham says, "What are you going to what, what are you going to do since you what am I going to do since you still haven't given me any children?" I think I think probably what you can hear in, in Abraham's comment and his question is, "This really isn't working out exactly the way I thought it would." And I can sympathize. I mean, it would take it would take a lot less time than it's taken Abraham here for me to think maybe God's not really in this deal at all. 
And it certainly wouldn't take that much time before one of my friends would come up and say, you know this thing you keep talking about and this thing you keep praying about? I don't know if God's really in it. It would take something considerably less than 25 years before somebody would say, you know, maybe you should rethink this plan. Right? And it would take me about, takes me about 25 minutes before I start thinking, hmm, maybe this isn't the right thing. It's not really working out for me yet. Um, but this is where Abraham is. But God comes and says, no, no, I'm going to keep my word. This man, this man, Eliezer, is not going to be your heir. You're going to have an heir from your own household. This is what he says in verses 4 and 5. This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the heavens and count the stars if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Then, for the first time in the Bible, you have this mention of this incredibly important word. A word that we talk about all the time. Virtually every time we stand up to speak about something about the Bible, the word faith comes out of our mouth in one way or another. And here it is for the first time. And right there with it, side by side with it, righteousness. And I think that's why it makes its first appearance here. Because what it's pointing us to is that from the very beginning, it's not something that Paul dreamed up, and that's what he's trying to make clear in chapters 3 and 4. From the very beginning, there is no talking about righteousness before God without also talking about faith. Never. There was never a time, and like, that's Paul's point. When Paul's making his case in Romans, his point is, hey, I'm not, I didn't pull this out of my hat. I didn't, I'm not making this up. This is the way it's always been. And when he wants proof for that, what does he do? Where does he go? Right here. Genesis 15. It says, just what about Abraham? What will we say about Abraham, our father according to the flesh? And this is where he comes. And when, when Paul wants to, uh, when Paul wants to, when Paul wants to convince, reconvince maybe, the Galatians about justification by faith, where does he come? Here. When James, and we're, if you come to the breakout session, I don't want, there's lots of good breakout sessions, but in my breakout session I'm going to talk about how James and Paul absolutely are not saying different things. Um, when James wants to talk about uh, what he has to say in James chapter 2, he comes here to Abraham. It's, I mean, Abraham is a central figure. No matter what you're talking about in terms, of, in terms of salvation, Abraham's a central figure, and this text, Genesis 15, is right at the heart of the whole thing. So there's where we stand with Abraham, and you know what happens next. It's a really interesting thing, and it's pretty grisly. Right? There's some animals that get cut up in half, and they're laid side by side, and a couple of birds are put in there. They're not split up, I guess, because they're too small. And, uh, you know, in, in this would have been something that Abram would have recognized. In, 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 ancient, in, in the ancient Near East, kings would have these agreements, and they would cut these animals up, and they would walk down between them. It's symbolic, of course, as you know. And, and the symbolism is, if I don't keep the words of this covenant, if I don't keep my end of the bargain, may this happen to me. And that's the kind of scene that unfolds here in Genesis 15 after this declaration, and Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness. But of course, as you know, the interesting thing, the profound thing, interesting doesn't capture it, the profound thing that happens is what? When it comes time to walk between the pieces, it's not Abram. It's God who passes through. 
It's God who passes through and, does, and by doing so does what? Binds himself to this promise. He binds himself to this promise that Abraham will be a great nation and that uh, through him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And just as an aside, if you, if you look around this room right now, there, is, there are, um, there are um, indications that God has indeed certainly kept his word. As here we are, I don't know, centuries and centuries later in Michigan, um, in, the North, in North America, talking about this ancient story and claiming to be part of it and claiming to be part of these nations that God has created and talking about this very same God. So God binds himself to keep this word and promises Abraham that, you know, in the future, in the future you will, you will return, but, but not yet, not yet. Can I, what, what time does this session end? 2.15? Oh, okay. We're more or less on schedule. You know what that means. So God, God still has these promises he's making with Abraham, but of course, God doesn't yet fulfill the promise of a child. It still goes on. It still, this, the, the, history of the, the history of this relationship continues on. Now, when God creates this and establishes, sorry, establishes, when he establishes this relationship with, with Abraham, this covenant, you know, we often sometimes talk about this covenant as being unconditional, right? You know, the Abrahamic covenant, unconditional. Um, and I think, that's, I think that's, a, that's, an, that's a good way to talk about it, as long as we're careful about what we mean by unconditional. And this is, this is now we're getting really, we're getting closer, I promise. It is unconditional in that it's God who binds himself to fulfill the promises of the covenant. And this covenant is sealed by, God, sealed by God's grace, and through it, God will enact his, his, his plan to save the human race. But nevertheless, nevertheless, when we talk about it being, being unconditional, we have, to be careful. we have to be careful that we don't lead people to think that if you're in covenant with God, then what you do doesn't really matter. So we, we want to be careful. We want to be careful with our language that we don't give the impression that we don't give the impression that, well, yeah, this, it's unconditional. Sort of my, God's taking care of the whole thing. Uh, and we just want to be careful that, we, that what, we say, what we say is what we mean and we want to be careful that what we say is what's reflected in the Bible. Now, if you look at, if you look at Genesis, we're going to skip forward to 17, it gets, things get spelled out a little bit quicker. I mean, a little bit, sort of, a little bit, not quicker. Things get spelled out a little bit more broadly. And you have something you can divide up between God's, I like to call them God's, I wills. And Abraham's, you will. Now, you know, you know what happens, right? In, in Genesis, Genesis 17, he gets the sign of the covenant, circumcision, the sign of the covenant. And you have a, a repetition of some of the promises. Um, God's going to, in verse 4, Abraham will be the 
father of nations. But that's going to be God's work. That's what God's going to do. In verse 5, he says, I have made you father of many nations. In verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. That says fruitful, trust me. Verse 7, I will establish my covenant with you and your offspring. And verse 8, I will give you and your, and your children, your offspring, the land, Canaan. So those are the things God says, I will. Now, there are also some you wills in verse 17. Sorry, chapter 17. Verse 9. You shall keep my covenant. Verse 10. All the males will be circumcised. Yeah, it's 10. And then verse 14, which is related to verse 15. It's kind of what happens if you don't do if you don't do 10. Here's what happens. Any uncircumcised male is cut off from the people. Right? So in other words, in other words, in this in this in this unconditional covenant, there is nevertheless there is nevertheless a particular way that Abram is meant to live in this relationship. Um, he can't just have it his way. Now it's important, though. I'm not saying this is. A, I'm not saying that this is a, like a two-way street. This is not what I'm saying. All I'm saying is, is when we talk about the unconditionality of the Abrahamic covenant, we want, we do want to be careful, though, that we do show people that it does not at all mean. And for Abraham, it did not at all mean. Now you can do whatever you want, because God will, God will fulfill His covenant regardless. Now. There is a way, of course, that you can speak that way, but we just need to be careful that we don't miscommunicate what we're saying. And I'll show you here in a second how vital that is when we come to, when we come to just a, a chapter or two later. Right? So as often as it's often been pointed out, as often been pointed out, what you have in the Abrahamic covenant is a covenant that emphasizes that God is the one who establishes, initiates, and... Um, establishes, initiates, and continues on with and controls and maintains that covenant promise according to his oath that he binds himself to. Right? There is no, absolutely no doubt about it. Uh, it's in the bank. You could put it that way. Because God promised. God, God put his own name on the line. 
when he, when, he, when, he, when he ratified that covenant in chapter 15. Nevertheless, the people in that covenant, the people in that covenant will keep my covenant. And I think what this means sort of gets spelled out all the way through to the fulfillment of all these things finally in the new covenant. Um, so this is, this is where that stands. So, let's go ahead then, with this in mind, let's go ahead and explore this idea of conditional and unconditional, because this gets right really to the heart of what we mean by sanctification. It really does. And how we speak about these things is extraordinarily important. Because one of the last things that we ever want to do, one of the last things that we ever, well, two things that we never want to do. One thing that we don't want to do is leave people with the impression, well, it's all basically kind of a biblical version of fate. And the other thing we don't want to do is leave um, people thinking, well, sin is bad, of course, and disobedience is bad, of course, but at the end of the day, I'm relying on what God has done for me. Now, of course we are, right? So don't hear me, but I mean a misapplication of that that then turns into license. That's what I mean. We, don't, we want to avoid that. We want to avoid, we want to avoid speaking in such a way that people can take something orthodox, like at the end of the day, what I'm relying on is Christ and everything he's done for me. That's a completely orthodox and biblical statement, but we don't want that to get sort of twisted and turned into license. To do things that are contrary, to do things that are contrary to that to that very thing. So, here we come. With all that groundwork, I want to go to Genesis chapter 18, and this is where the real, this is where the tension between justification, sanctification, faith and works, works and obedience, however you want, I mean, obedience and faith, however however you want to put the tension. This is where it really comes to a head. And I think these verses are kind of the key to understanding the relationship between justification, sanctification, faith and works um, in, the, in the entire Bible. And it's in this relationship, this covenantal relationship that God has with Abraham. And we see it really clearly in chapter 18. So, so what, what, what happens in chapter 18? You might remember the story, right? God has heard, God knows, what's going on in Sodom. And he plans, he plans to go down there and take care of business. In the meantime, he visits Abram. And uh, as he's getting ready, as, as the visitors, as, sorry, as the visitors are getting ready to leave, and it's important that we, we, you know, we read this verse, these verses. As they're getting ready to leave, this is in verses 17 and 19. Now, I want, to, I want you to do me a favor as you're reading these verses. I'm just... I can't check you on this or test you on it. But I want you to try not to read ahead. I want you to try to read slowly and kind of stop reading when I stop reading, if you can. Because uh, it's really important that we just see it step by step by step by step so we can sort of follow how it goes. And what we'll do is, is we'll, we'll kind of end with this, and then when we come back to the second session, we'll unpack how it gets unpacked in the rest of the Scripture. Verse, verse 17. The Lord said... Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Okay, stop right there and stop looking, if you can. 
Some of you aren't, but I'm going to assume that you are, even if it looks like you're not. Right? Now, you, you heard it, right? You, you got it. Seeing that, Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, all the nations will be blessed through him. Right? It's, it's, it's done. It's taken care of. It's a fact. Right? What is God doing? God is repeating what he's already promised. Why would I, shall I have from Abraham what I'm about to do? Since he's going to inherit every promise I've, I've, every promise I've made to him. Since he's going to be a great nation. In other words, Abraham's on, I'm on Abraham's side. Abraham, we're in this covenantal relationship together. Why, why would I hide from him what I'm about to do? Right? I mean, that's what it looks like. You think, okay, good, yes. That's exactly right. It's in the bank. Now keep going. For I have chosen him. Okay, stop right there. I have chosen him. Okay, another, another thing in the bank, right? Chapter 12, God appears to Abraham. Who's Abraham? He is an idol worshiper from a family of idol worshipers in Ur of the Chaldeans. And by the way, remember, if, if, you, if, if you wonder about that, think about when Joshua says to the Israelites, choose this day, whether you'll follow the Lord or do what? Go back across the rivers, go back across the river and worship idols like your fathers. Which fathers? These guys. Abram. So, God's chosen him. Completely on board, right? Exactly right. God has promised Abram. He's going to fulfill that promise. And it all comes down to God choosing Abram. Abram didn't choose God. Uh, Abram didn't lay out sort of the foundations of this relationship. He didn't cause, he didn't sort of lay the groundwork. He didn't make the ground rules. He didn't, it's, he didn't come in and, and uh, sort of establish how the relationship's going to be. It all happened on God's side of the relationship. All, everything from the introduction from, of God to Abraham and Abraham to God, everything. God initiates it. God pulls it off. God sustains it. You name it. Whatever you come up with, God did it all. All of it. And God chose him, right? So we're all on board. You think, okay, you keep repeating this a lot. Okay, so... I'm going to let you read a little bit more. For I have chosen him that, or so that, he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Now, please stop right there. It's really hard to stop, I know, but you've got to stop there. Okay, fine. I've chosen him so that he will command his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Okay, fine. Good. I mean, that makes sense, right? God has established this covenant. God has called Abraham. God's put Abraham in this relationship. God has bound himself to keep this. And then God's saying, in this relationship, you'll keep my covenant. And so God, what God says is what? Well, of course, Abraham will teach his children to do what? Well, what I told Abraham to do, and that is keep my covenant. And that makes sense. I mean, everybody's on board. I think we'd all say, yes, exactly. Now, let's read the last line. To keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham or bring about to Abraham what he has promised him. Do you, do you get it? Do you see it? Do you see it? Right? I mean, these verses, we don't ever talk about these verses. In fact, I have to be honest with you. Um, it was a long time into thinking about justification and imputation and all these other things that I've been talking about for a long time. It was, I was a long time into talking about those things before I really even noticed these verses. Because you know what you do. I mean, you come to Abraham, you read, you read uh, 12, 
and you read a little bit of 15 and a little bit of 13 and a little bit of 17, and then you go to 22, and then you're done. Then you go to Paul. Or you start with Paul, and then you go back and skim around these things. But you don't really usually read chapter 18, right? When you're talking about justification and imputation, these kind of things. But then when I first came to this verse, and I, it, I'm, you know, I'm not like uh, Jack Horner, right? It, you know, the, the Jack Horner sort of, uh, the Jack Horner story, right? You know, little Jack Horner sat in a corner eating his Christmas pie, stuck in his thumb, pulled out a plum. You know, the, the, you know, the moral behind that is what? He thinks he's great because he found something. Of course, of course, he didn't put it there. He just found what was there all along, right? But he's, he, thinks he's, you know, he thinks he's an all-star for just sticking his finger in a pie. And that's, that's the story behind that nursery rhyme, by the way, right? That's the moral, right? You didn't, it was already there. Stop boasting. Well, that, anyway, that's my interpretation of it anyhow. So anyway, but I think that's probably right. Okay, so back to the story. You can see the tension in this verse, right? And I, I don't think we can just gloss over it. I don't think there's a way to look at this verse and say, well, yeah, sure, but. I don't think there is a real, there, I don't think there's a, a yeah, sure, but to, this, to these verses. Just think about it. I'm just going to repeat some of the main things. Shall I hide, seeing that Abram will surely become a great and mighty nation? It's going to happen. It's in the bank. God's promise is done. It's sealed. It's established. You can put all your money on it. Kentucky Derby's in Louisville this weekend, so I'll use those kind of metaphors. You can, there's no doubt, it's done. The nations will be blessed for him, blessed in him. It's done. I've chosen him. That's what I did. God initiated the work. God started the work. God's sustaining the work. God will see the work through to the end. God from beginning to end and in the middle, right? Exactly right. And he'll command his children to do what I've, what I've commanded. But then that last line. So that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. What does that so that mean? How does that work? How does that fit in? How do we understand that? How do we understand that when we're talking about all this sort of background and the reason I wanted to go into that background about Abraham is just so we have, the whole, you know, we have more of the story of Abraham in our, in, our, in our minds sort of banging around when we come to this verse rather than just jump in here. How do you make that one little phrase so that? How do you make that fit? How does that fit? That's the question, right? How does it do it? It's, it on one hand, it's all in the bank. God's going to do it. God chose him. He's going to bring this about. But then, I've taught, I've, I've chosen him so he will train his children to live, to live and to do justice and righteousness, so that I'll bring about what I promised. You could read this and think, well, so which is it? Right. I think the only way not to look at this and, and at least cross your mind, which is it, is to think. Well, it doesn't really mean what it says. Right? That's the only way. The only way you can come to this and not at least see the tension is to say, well, it doesn't mean what it says. It means something else. That you have to have some kind of like enlightenment to understand. Because you can't just, it's not just in the words. It's something behind the words. Well, what does it mean? How does it get worked out? How do you preach that? I mean, after talking about things like justification by faith alone, grace alone through Christ alone, 
and, 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 and how our whole entire position before God is based solely upon the work of Christ on our behalf from beginning to end. That works, either past, present, or future, are not the basis of our justification and our acceptance before God ever. And then you come to a verse like this. How do we explain it to people? How do we make that fit? Or do we have to make it fit? Or... Have we been emphasizing the wrong things? I'm just, I'm, I'm not landing on something, right? I'm just saying, here's, the, I'm, here's sort of the option. That don't, don't, don't mishear me. But I think understanding these verses, understanding these verses helps us to put together the whole picture of what it means, going back, of what God expects and how God intends, how God intends to have people that will be completely and wholly devoted to Him, sanctified before Him in every area of life. That issue, that idea cannot be separated from God binding himself to that promise to Abraham. So, are you moving on, on purpose? Oh, Jeff is slowly moving to the, uh, that, that's usually a sign that I'm supposed to. What well, sort of puts me between a rock and a hard place, doesn't it? I mean, <laughs> no, no, you're fine. I was getting ready to, actually, I was getting ready to wind up because I wanted to leave it right here. Um, I'm just having fun with you. Sort of at your expense, I'm sorry. Um, but it's come the other direction. I just want to say, if you're thinking, man, he's kind of picking on Jeff. You know, the day didn't just begin just now. So anyhow. Um, there's been a, there's a, there's a, there's a back story to all this. So when we come back, when we come back, I want to answer this question. I want to get at this verse. I want to get at that so that. And I want to get at that unconditional promise of God to, uh, to make a great nation out of Abram so that we can understand, we can understand the real biblical foundation and groundwork for how we can understand sanctification and why, and why, it, really is, why, why it really is at the heart, at the heart of the great truths that we, that we love to proclaim and, and to preach. So the break is what, 30, 30 minutes, something like that? Okay, did you have something you wanted to say? Nah. Well, I don't know. Let me get straight. <laughs> no, I don't. It's fine.